whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to a special episode of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. I teach philosophy at MIT, and I'm interested in ethics and in everything related to ethics. In this episode, I'll ask five of my colleagues one question about themselves. As usual, there are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed, so if you're familiar with the hand-finger convention from philosophy discussion periods, where a hand is a new line of questioning and a finger is a follow-up, I am allowed to use my finger. And the second ground rule is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? I'm Alex Byrne. I'm the head of the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy here at MIT, although this is the last year of my reign of terror. I'm interested in philosophy of mind, epistemology, metaphysics, and recently I have a sideline in the philosophy of sex and gender. Well, it's great to have you here, Alex. As you know, my inspiration for the podcast is Iris Modoc, and she begins each episode telling us that philosophy is certainly not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy, and if so, how? Well, I should say something about my my philosophical views first, I think. So I recently wrote a book on self-knowledge in which I defended the view that, in a sense, there's no such thing as introspection, looking into your own mind. Instead, you learn about your own mind by learning or trying to learn about your environment. So to take the easiest case, I can come to know that I believe that it's sunny by noting a, a fact which is not about me or my psychological states at all, namely that it is sunny. Okay, so that's my view. Now, on the temperament thing, my wife Carol has often remarked on my, um, as she sees it, disturbing inability to explore the psychological roots of my actions and my just general reluctance to understand myself. And I think there's some Truth to that, I'm uncomfortable being the center of attention, not out of, an, out of an excess of modesty or anything like that. I think, like most academics, I combine insecurity with, with an inflated opinion of my own talents. But anyway, that uncomfortableness carries over to the first person. I don't like paying attention to myself. I find exploring my inner life uncomfortable. I would be the worst candidate in the world for psychotherapy. Anyway, so when I explained my views on self-knowledge to Carol, she thought the explanation was obvious. I've tried to validate this discomfort I have about self-examination by building this elaborate and implausible philosophical theory, which rules out inner exploration as impossible. Well, I, I, there's so much to follow up on there. It's, very, it's all highly reflexive that your view about self-knowledge <laughs> is informed by your complex relationship to introspection. And, you know, this question of whether whether you'd be a good candidate for, for psychotherapy, Alex, I, 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 you know, <laughs> I think you may be wrong about that. But the, um, the, so how seriously do you take this explanation of your view that, that there's a real temperamental 
reluctance to acknowledge the depths and darkness of introspection? Well, of course, it, it goes right to the to the Murdoch question, although maybe not quite in the way she in, intended. Because you know, if Carol's view is right, then philosophy is is a kind of therapy for me, although not in the way that Wittgenstein intended. So, in a way, I'm according to her, I'm exploring my temperament while somehow fooling myself that this is an attempt to discover the truth. So if I took that really seriously, then, of course, this would undermine my own philosophical views. You know, they're not based in serious evidence or argument. It's just something that's very convenient for me to believe. So of course, I'm, I'm very resistant to that, to that explanation. But it does worry me. I mean, there's just a general issue in philosophy of, of how your temperament or external non-epistemic influences might end up changing or altering your philosophical views. I mean, you know, it's a sort of common observation that people tend to end up with philosophical views that match the philosophical views of their advisors. If they'd gone to some other graduate school, then they would have ended up with very different beliefs. And this is just a kind of extreme example of that, I suppose. Well, that's great. That that yields the prediction that if people come to MIT, they're likely to end up disbelieving in introspection <laughs> and, and be, being opaque to themselves. So that's that's good to look forward to. Thanks, Alex, so much for appearing on the podcast. Well, it's a great pleasure on this special episode to be able to introduce another guest to the podcast. So maybe you could say a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do. Hi, everyone. I'm Sally Haslinger, and I mainly work these days in social political philosophy, but I have a background in metaphysics, philosophy of language, epistemology. And so a big part of what I do is connect those topics of social ontology, social epistemology, and philosophy of language to broader issues in social political philosophy. So there are many things, Sally, I would like to ask you about your philosophical work, and maybe I, I will in a roundabout way, but I'm going to ask you this question. If you weren't a philosopher, what do you think you would do? That's a great question, because I've often thought of quitting philosophy, of doing something else, and part of the reason I have is that I am a social justice warrior. I really believe that we ought to commit ourselves to social justice and doing philosophy is sometimes feels a bit remote from that. But I think I would be a social activist. I would be involved in community organizing. I would be part of an NGO that is more on the ground aiming to improve our social conditions. Did that ever come close to happening? Was there a point where that was a, a kind of live alternative? Well, I have been involved in social movement work since I was in college, but it's always been, you know, on the side or volunteering, so to speak. And the biggest issue back in the day when I was much younger is that I didn't think that I was very good at being the person to really get the organization or the group moving. I was more in the background trying to think about what we ought to do and how we ought to do, you know, sort of the background questions. And I saw that other people were much better at making things happen. And so I thought, hmm, you know, I'm just not 
so good at this and maybe I should put my energies into more directly training myself to think about it more carefully. And so that was what put me into philosophy. But I I find that I'm actually not as bad as I thought I was at organizing people. And I actually like to organize people and organize activities and such like that. And so, you know, it's a kind of personal growth, I think, of, of learning about myself and what I can contribute that now has made it more clear to me that, no, I, I could have done that. And maybe I will when I retire. I mean, when you went into philosophy and you were writing, I don't know if this was your dissertation, but I think of your early work as being about Aristotle and persistence and sort of topics and metaphysics. Did you already hope or plan to end up working on philosophical topics that connect with activism and social justice? No, not at all. I was very interested in metaphysics for its own sake, and I was interested in scholarship. I really loved the activity of reading texts very closely and developing the language skills and whatever to to study. And I had the feeling that I would be able to combine both in a life, the activist work and the philosophical work. And I also thought that philosophical work could contribute to you know, the clarity of thinking, the critical thought, all of those sorts of things to movement work. But I didn't think I was going to do social political philosophy. And that's partly because I really hated the ethics classes and the social political classes that I had taken. And I thought that philosophy was really misguided in the kind of normative domain. And so I didn't find that very useful. Maybe I'll ask one last follow-up question then. What changed that? What made you sort of switch that resistance and turn your work towards race, gender, ideology, the kind of things you've been writing about recently? Well, in 1990, 1989, 1990, uh, Louise Antony and Charlotte Witt asked me to contribute a paper to a book called A Mind of One's Own. And that was because even though I was my philosophical work was mainly in metaphysics, I had been running feminist philosophy or more broadly feminist theory reading groups. And so I had met Charlotte Witt in one of these discussion groups, and she knew Louise, and they decided they wanted to edit this book. And Charlotte said, oh, we've got to invite Sally Hasslinger to do it. I didn't know Louise. And so the topic they had posed for us was, what is the right approach to reason and objectivity within feminist thought? Because at that time, there were a lot of French feminists who were very opposed to thinking that reason could be a helpful tool in the fight for social justice. And philosophers in the analytic tradition thought that was misguided. So they asked me to write a paper and I said, no, no way. I don't work on that stuff. And they convinced me, however. And then I wrote a paper on Catherine McKinnon's views about objectivity and I never turned back. Well, Thanks, Louise Anthony and Charlotte Witt for pushing Sally in this direction. And thanks, <laughs> Sally, for appearing on the podcast. So I'm going to introduce another colleague, or rather ask them to introduce themselves. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your philosophical work? Sure. Uh, my name is Brad Scow, and I am a professor here at MIT with Kieran my philosophical interests are in metaphysics, uh, the philosophy of science, and more recently in aesthetics. I published a book on the nature of time, 
published a book on the nature of explanation. And then there's a third one, which is a little bit harder to explain, but it basically says that the distinction between doing and being is more important than metaphysicians have recently given it credit for. Well, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Has philosophy ever helped you out of a practical or emotional difficulty in your life? So when, when I saw that question before this interview, I thought, oh, well, this is the kind of question where you ask non-philosophers this and they'll say, oh, yeah, there's this, this pithy Nietzsche quote that changed my life or something like that. And that you're hoping that if you ask an academic philosopher this question, it'll be some, something quite different They'll be like, oh, well, you know, thinking about constructive empiricism in the philosophy of science, like to help me with my something or other. But my story is, is more similar to the non-philosopher, my, my suspicion of what the non-philosopher's one looks like than, than the academic one. So the story is, after I'd met my now wife and we'd been dating for a while, I was trying to decide whether to ask her to marry me. And like, I very much wanted to, I thought it was our decision, but I was very nervous and unsure about it just because it's such a big decision. You're making this lifelong commitment, the usual things. And it's not like I had had some attitude beforehand that I wanted to like keep my options open as long as possible, but still I felt really nervous about it. And while I was mulling it over, this quote from Harry Frankfurt floated into my mind. I think it's, um, what has no boundaries has no shape. And I don't even think I even knew where in the Frankfurt corpus it was or what his point was with that quote. But it stuck in my mind is this idea that sometimes eliminating options or making commitments can be something that makes your life good in a way that it couldn't be otherwise. And marriage is just like that. It's the, like maybe the, the biggest example of that, maybe aside from having children. And it made me feel much more confident that I was making the right decision. Did you tell Deanna that the Frankfurt quote had played this vital role in your thinking? Oh, no, I, I, I never talked to her about that, actually. So this, this podcast could be where she hears it first. Yes, this is going to be this is going to be where she hears it first. Did you ever go back and look up the context and find out what exactly he was doing afterwards? No, I never did. Uh, I guess sort of after I after we then got married, I just didn't think about it that much again. In fact, I didn't really think about it again until I couldn't even remember last week where it is. I had to Google, and it took a lot of Google searching to actually find it. I think it's, it, it's, it's in the preface to the importance of what we care about. It's something about the importance of second-order desires in, in being a person or something like that. It, it, it was a little bit like what I had imagined it, its significance was, but it wasn't like on the nose. Exactly like the whole, like, my context-free Nietzsche quote that I saw on a billboard changed my life. It's a little bit like that because I... The Frankfurt quote was a little bit context-free for me, but still somehow resonated. Do you have the ambition to write a similar quote for someone to look at your writing one day and find a sentence like that and make a momentous decision in their own life? Or is that not something you think of as a, a kind of goal to aspire towards in your own philosophy? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I actually wonder about Frankfurt. I don't know if you ever knew him well enough to know the answer. Did, did he, as, he himself aspire to be deep in this way? I mean, his work definitely strikes me as deep in that way, a lot of it. But was that his goal or was that just sort of something happened as a byproduct of his search for the truth? I guess I feel like, in answering your question, I don't feel wise enough to aspire to that sort of depth or impact on other people's lives. I feel like if I write something that people think is a mildly amusing way to say what I'm trying to say that that's like me hitting the gold mine. I think that writing a quote like 
that has this kind of impact on people is, is so far outside my reach, I never even consider it. But it's also, as a second part of the answer, I'd never really written on topics that lent themselves to that sort of aspiration in the first place. Well, I'm going to make it my goal to drop quotations from your book on the metaphysics of aspect into conversation and just hope that one day one of them ignites some tremendous life change for one of my listeners. And meanwhile, I'll say thank you, Brad, for appearing on the podcast. Well, three down, two to go. I'm going to ask one more guest to say a bit about who they are and what sort of philosophical work they do. Hi, I'm Tamara Shapiro. I teach in the MIT philosophy department. I work on ethics, moral philosophy, Kantian ethics in particular, history of moral philosophy, philosophy of agency and practical reason, and I guess what's often called moral psychology. I just finished a book called Feeling Like It, which is about our inclinations and how we should relate to our inclinations. Well, this isn't the official question, but I'm going to sneak it in as a follow-up. So the, the book is about a kind of scene, begins with a kind of scene of drama, of confronting an inclination and having to manage it. Is that something that you feel is a common experience in your life? Was there a kind of an urgent personal need to address temptation and the, the pull of desire? Yes. I, I, I think there, there was a moment where someone said to me, they're just feelings. Don't judge them. And as a Kantian, my response was, well, what should I do with my feelings other than judge them? And then I started thinking more and I thought, you know what? What's your theory of feeling such that one shouldn't judge it? And then it made me think, wait, I don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about feelings and their role in our lives, such that there are things we should and shouldn't do with them. So that is what piqued my curiosity. Well, that's great. I w I'm going to resist the temptation to just talk to you about the philosophy of action and Kantian moral psychology and ask you the official question. And you'll be happy to know that I saved the easiest question for you, Tamar. So here it is. Do you think there's progress in philosophy? And if so, what form does it take? Oh, this is such a hard question, but it's such an interesting question. And I, I get sort of meta interested in why is it so hard and why is it so interesting? In my personal intellectual trajectory, I feel like I'm progressing. I feel like I'm getting closer to getting things right than I did earlier in my intellectual journey. So of course, that really gives me a sense that at least there is something in principle we can call philosophical progress. It's hard to couple that personal feeling with a denial that philosophy more generally can progress, right? Yeah. But then when I take a step back and I look at sort of the history of philosophy as a whole, what do I think? Since my conception of philosophy is not modeled on science, it's sort of very different from science. I don't think the model of scientific progress is a good model for philosophical progress. I don't think philosophy is an attempt to understand sort of the world in the way that science tries to understand the world. I think philosophy is self-understanding, is aims at a kind of self-understanding. But then does that progress? That's a hard question. You could break it down into like, do the questions change over time? 
And if they change, can there be progress? Are the questions the same over time? I think the questions, there's a real continuity in the deep questions over time, even though the particular forms that they take can change. So say Plato and Aristotle weren't concerned with, say, freedom and responsibility the way that more modern philosophers were. But I do think there are concerns about freedom that that were there and that they worried about. But it, I think time can affect the way that different philosophers frame different questions. So that's one part of, of what I think about when I think about this question. Does thinking of philosophical progress in terms of self-understanding, do you think that maybe explains or predicts this lack of historical progress? Because in a way, you can't build on other people when you're aiming at self-understanding. You have to sort of start over from scratch, from wherever you are. And you wouldn't expect the fact that Plato had figured out something to help you directly figure out your own life. Yes, except that I think the self I'm trying to understand is maybe more general or more universal than that. So, I mean, I guess I think of philosophy as starting from very fundamental concepts that we find ourselves having to use, I think, in almost in every culture. I'm not sure, but concepts like reality, goodness, truth, knowledge, freedom. And I think of philosophy as an attempt to sort of get clear on what we're saying and doing when we're using these concepts. So I share something with Plato. We were both trying to understand what we're saying and doing when we're thinking about goodness and the good life, say, or thinking about justice. And granted, there may be differences in how we framed that question. And some of those differences may be based on very different historical settings. I mean, I live post-scientific revolution. My picture of nature is very different than Plato's picture of nature. But there's still, I think, a, a similarity in the concepts that we're using and in the kind of moves that one can make to try to get clear on what a coherent conception of goodness or a good life would possibly be. So I think there's some ways of answering those questions that, you know, tend to clump in packages, sort of empiricist approaches, rationalist approaches. And they they recur in in forms that display continuity amid discontinuity. But I think kind of trying to work out the best version of a certain package is maybe the best one can strive for in philosophy. Well, it's good to have reasonable ambitions and maybe <laughs> maybe we'll end with the, the goal of working out a, a package of views that actually makes sense. And I'll say thank you, Tamar, for appearing on the podcast. Okay, I have one final guest and I'm gonna ask them to briefly introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Agustin Rayo. I'm a logic-y philosopher. Well, that, that was a brief introduction, Agustin. Do you want to say a bit more about what, what, what do you use logic to do in your, uh, in your philosophy? Well, it, that's a, a source of anxiety for me because I said that, but I'm actually not a logician. So I, I don't know enough logic to 
do logic of the kind uh, that might impress a mathematician. So really what I do is use formal methods in the service of philosophical problems. And sometimes that means building a little model, say, to illustrate the kind of idea that you're, you're trying to develop and, and show that it holds water. And so this is something you've done in sort of metaphysics or epistemology language? Like what's the range of topics that you tend to work on? Well, it's the only way I know how to proceed. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so any, any topic I've worked on. I mean, the the most extreme example is in the philosophy of language, where I have this little theory of vagueness. And then I made a little simulation model where you have a bunch of creatures and some use language in the way my proposal suggests you should. And rival creatures use language differently. And then when you communicate successfully, you survive. And when you don't, you die. And I use this as evidence that my proposal is superior because my creatures tend to outlive the rival creatures. That's great. That's excellent to see computer gaming come into conversation with philosophy. I, I, I bet there's, there's, probably, there's probably some money in that if you, uh, if you look for it. So I always end the podcast by asking a second Iris Murdoch question that begins with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is he afraid of? So, Agustine, what are you afraid of? <laughs> I mean, I think in philosophy, one thing I'm afraid of is lapsing into nonsense. So I, I can live with, you know, having defended false theories. I, I think I, you know, definitely found my peace with that. But it, it makes me tremble to the bone to think that I will have spent years of my life pursuing answers to questions that aren't even false. That you know, I was just like playing some game that isn't even valuable with respect to truth or falsity. And I think that's really colored my approach to philosophy. So, you know, I, I think that, that that is one reason why I do metaphysics in the way that I do, where I have very high standards for what I count as an acceptable metaphysical tool. And I think it's also led me to do philosophy in this more formal way. I mean, do you have an example of, uh, you don't have to name names invidiously, but an example of a debate in philosophy or a topic where you look at someone else having worked on it or some subject having been popular in philosophy and think, that just turned out to be nonsense. I'm so relieved that it, it that wasn't my project. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm going to think about that for a moment. I mean, what I regard as a canonical example of philosophical nonsense that's popular nowadays is the discussion on metaphysical grounding. So I just do not understand what people mean by grounding in a way that satisfies all the constraints theorists want to impose on the notion. Someone might convince me that it really does make sense, and I think they would convince me if they were able to do philosophical work with a notion that I thought was both important and impossible to do in other ways or hard to do in other ways. But I definitely can't understand that concept just by being described in the way it tends to be described. I mean, there's this there's a kind of long history of worrying about philosophy being nonsense and sort of versions of it that come out of both Wittgenstein's earlier work and Wittgenstein's 
later work. And one idea you find there is that there, at least on some interpretations of Wittgenstein, there might be a contrast between sort of mere nonsense and a, a more exalted kind of nonsense. And the, the sort of controversy about whether Wittgenstein really thought that all nonsense was just nonsense or whether there is a, a special exalted kind that communicates something deep. I mean, do you have, a, do you have any sympathy for that idea that, that sometimes the nonsense is sort of reaching for something transcendent? No. So I, I like resolute interpretations of the Tractatus on which uh, if it's nonsense, it's nonsense. Although, you know, one thing that I, I do believe is that at the edge of nonsense, there is a lot to be learned. And that in a way, some of the most interesting philosophical questions are exactly there. So in a way, I feel like the like an important philosophical methodology is, is, to, is to get to the brink of, of nonsense and then do one's best not to fall down. Well, I think maybe on the edge of nonsense is where we'll end. And I'll say thanks, Agustin, for appearing on the podcast. Thanks also to Alex, Sally, Brad, and Tamar. I'm sorry I couldn't talk to all of my wonderful colleagues, maybe on a future special. Meanwhile, thank you for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>